several months ago, actually, we surveyed all of Genesis. We learned that it's a book of beginnings, that it's a primal record of the people of God, and that in a world of competing identities, of identity politics, this book teaches us our identity. It serves as the church's Ancestry.com. It tells us that we are sons and daughters of Abraham, something we can identify as, something which puts us in a larger family of saints who have placed their hope in the gospel of Christ. But as we will discuss more this week, this book also teaches that we are the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, which is a more tragic affiliation, but an affiliation not without hope. We read Genesis 1, or we read Genesis 1 a few weeks ago and observed that the world is made by the Creator God, who is separate from His creation. There is a Creator, and there are His creatures. This distinction is fundamentally at odds with many Eastern religions, particularly Hinduism, where everything is one. God is everything. I am this, and you are that. This is one of the fundamental creeds of Hinduism, to learn, I am that. But that's not true. God is not everything. You are not everything. God made everything. God is the creator, and we are his creatures. And when we are baptized into the Trinity, we are one with God, but we do not lose our separateness, our creatureliness. A man and a woman who marry become one, yet they are still two. A man who is baptized into Christ becomes one with Christ, yet Christ and the man are still separate. Jesus is not the Father, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, yet the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all one. Hinduism and Buddhism, Buddhism say everything is unity, and there is no diversity. Diversity is what they call maya. It's a facade. And true enlightenment means recognizing that diversity doesn't exist because everything is one. Everything is unified. On the other end of the spectrum, the postmodern world, postmodernism says all is diversity and there is no unity. There is no overarching connection to anything. Nothing connects. But we erect these systems of thought which adhere uh, systems of thought which adhere to any kind of unifying meaning are only artificial. We give them meaning. To use postmodern jargon, they're plausibility structures. But in the Christian religion, we affirm both unity and diversity. We don't have to absolutize either one. We don't have to absolutize all unity like Hinduism does or all diversity, like postmodernism does. We have both of these things. God is one, yet God is three. God is a creator, and he makes creatures, and yet, in Christ, we are one with our creator. So we have both of these things, and they exist together in, in a mystery, and that's fine. We're happy to rest our souls in the mystery of God and his creation, of marriage, of baptism, of the triune God. Additionally, the Genesis account tells us that there was, in fact, a beginning, a beginning of creation. This, too, is at odds with some pagan thoughts on our own origins. Hindus and the ancient Greeks believed that the world was just cyclical, 
They just continued to cycle through. It was this eternal cycle that the universe just repeats itself over and over and over again. But in the Christian accounting, the universe has a beginning, and it was created by somebody. It's linear. It's like a story. It's eternal, but it's only eternal in one direction, not two. In Genesis 1, God speaks the world into existence, and we observe that man, made in the image of God, of his creator, also speaks worlds into existence. We observe that life and death is in the power of the tongue, that our words have the power to bless and to curse men. We have the power to encourage, to edify, but also to condescend and to debase. Our words are given to us to speak the gospel to men, which kills the old men and then gives life to the new man. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. And this godlike endeavor is so important that we will be judged for every careless word that we speak. When we speak, we are to speak as the oracles of God. When we speak, we are creating worlds, and we will be judged for the worlds which we create. It's, it's uh, fashionable to be an old earth Darwinist right now. But we affirmed the traditional reading of Genesis 1, that the world really was created in six literal days. That the ordering of the appearance of life in the Darwinian Old Earth model contradicts the Genesis account. That the science is still out on the evolution question and that honest intellectuals who are more concerned with truth than fitting in with the cool kids know that the evidence is not conclusive and is actually piling up against the Darwinian Old Earth evolutionary model. Anyone who's read Thomas Kuhn knows that it's only a matter of time before the paradigm changes. But not only do we have scientific problems with Old Earth Darwinian evolutionary mythology, we have to mangle the text in order to make it fit into a cohesive theology. So these are theological problems. We have to make Genesis 1 completely allegorical or fictional in some sense. We have to reorder it in order to make it fit the scientific paradigms. But with the traditional reading, we can acknowledge that Genesis 1 does have poetic language. Indeed, it does. But we don't have to abandon a literal meaning, a historic meaning which really is the most natural way to read the text. And it's the most natural way to make it harmonize nicely with the rest of scriptures. For example, Jesus wouldn't refer to Adam and Eve as existing in the beginning if billions of years had preceded their existence. That's not the beginning, is it? Also, if billions of years had preceded Adam and Eve, according to the old earth models, and nature was red in tooth and claw, we have to also acknowledge that Paul was confused when he said that death entered through Adam. And we have to read the institution of the seven-day week ending in Sabbath as an arbitrary correlation to the creation of the world in six days, with God resting on the seventh. Of course, as truth seekers and traditional Christians, we do not believe that Jesus, Paul, and Moses 
we're confused about these things. We take them at face value, recognizing the poetic symbolism in the text without wrenching it from its historical context. When Jesus says that Adam and Eve were in the beginning, we believe they were in the beginning. When Paul says that death entered through Adam, we believe that death was en entered through Adam, not that it entered prior to Adam. When Moses says that when he makes the comparison of the the seven day the six day work week with the seventh day as the Sabbath, we don't believe that he's making this correlation with long periods and long eras of time in Genesis. We believe that it was a seven day week in the creation, just as uh, just as it was in the institution of the Sabbath. It's a more natural and harmonious way to read the text. We also noticed how the creation of the natural world tells us things about the supernatural world. It's very likely that the light on days one through three was provided by God himself, the glory cloud, the fire light of the Holy Spirit, which we see all throughout the rest of scripture. We know that in the new Jerusalem, in the culmination of the new heavens and the new earth, there's not going to be a sun and there's not gonna be a moon. That is not going to be the source of light. It'll be provided by the Lord himself. Revelation 21, 23 says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So there were no sun or moon until day four, if we take this reading of the text. There was no sun or moon until, the, until day four of the creation, and I believe it's reasonable to assume that the Lord provided the light himself. The creation of the celestial bodies on day four were created to govern the earth, to govern times and seasons, we're told. And throughout the Bible, celestial bodies are often compared or used to symbolize human rulers, whether they be civil or ecclesiastical. For example, in Joseph's dreams, his brothers are symbolized as stars, his mother as the moon, and his father as the sun, Genesis 37. God, speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, makes a strong connection between the Pharaoh and Egypt and celestial bodies, that the destruction of Egypt and Pharaoh would correspond with the darkening of the celestial bodies like stars, sun, and moon, Ezekiel 32. So, in the creation account, I believe we are invited to see celestial bodies like the stars, the sun, and the moon as typifying, symbolizing men. In that when God invests his firelight into these celestial bodies, as he did on day four, so that they can rule the earth, it typifies God investing his Holy Spirit into men at Pentecost. And in the new covenant, so that they can likewise rule the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. Day four, God invests his light into the celestial bodies. Pentecost is our day four of the new creation. Lastly, we noted that God rested on the seventh day and that this rest was also modeled in the Old Covenant dispensation under the Sabbath and the Sabbath laws where they were to rest from work and to keep the Sabbath holy. In Hebrews, we are told that the promised land of the Jews was also a type of rest. And we are told that all of these things typify salvation in Christ, that Christ is our Sabbath, that just as God created a world and rested from his work, Christ created a new world and also rested from his work. And that in Christ, we can enter his rest and enjoy the fruits of his work. We can enter into his salvation. Christ is our rest. 
This is all in chapter 1 of the first book of the Bible. The creator and his creation. Then in chapter 2, we read about man and creation. Man and his relationship to the world, the world that his creator had put him in. It's about a gardener, Adam, and his garden. It's about a husband, Adam, and his wife, his helper. Adam doesn't name her Eve until later in chapter 3, as we just read. Adam's purpose was to tend and keep and protect the garden, just as he was to tend and keep and protect his helper wife. It wasn't good for Adam to be alone, and none of the other creatures were suitable helpmates for him, so God gives him a creature, which is the crown of creation, a woman. We have noted several times in our readings that the natural world speaks to us about the supernatural world. The natural world are poems and sermons that God recites and preaches to us regularly, and the record of Genesis 2 is no exception to this. We are told that certain features of the garden and the gardener, which both have fuller meanings, we are told about certain features of the garden and the gardener, which both have fuller meanings when the rest of Scripture is brought to bear. Genesis 2.9 reads, And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So God made men in trees from the same raw material. He made them both from dirt. And we also see that God wasn't a Puritan. He created trees pleasant to the sight. They serve an aesthetic function. They were beautiful. And beauty, especially in nature, elevates our minds to the divine, to God himself, the creator. Paul tells us this plainly in Romans 1. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and godhood, so that they are without excuse. John Calvin elaborates. By saying that God has made it manifest, he means that man was created to be a spectator of this formed world in that eyes were given to him that he might, by looking on so beautiful a picture, be led up to the author himself. Throughout scripture, we see that trees are often used to represent men. They represent righteous men in Psalm 1. They represent wicked men and bad rulers in Judges 9. The man Jesus heals in John 15. He, he sees men and he says that they look like trees walking about initially. Jesus says that he's the vine and that we're the branches in John 15. Jesus curses a fig tree which doesn't have any fruit on it in Matthew 13. And the fig tree represents the men in Israel. Jesus says uh, the kingdom is like a mustard seed that grows into a tree which the birds come and nest on its branches. Actually, I'm not sure. If the, I, don't, I don't think the fig tree uh, episode is in Matthew 13. But Jesus saying that the kingdom is like a mustard seed that grows into a tree which the birds come and nest on with its branches. That's Matthew 13. And this allegory is the small beginning of the church composed of a few men in one nation growing into millions of men in all nations. So, just as God made trees pleasant to the sight so that those looking at the beauty of creation with their eyes might draw their eyes to heaven and see God himself, so too does God make men pleasant to the sight in a similar way. Those who see men as God made them to be, those who see men as God made them to be will glorify God. 
Jesus says in Matthew 5, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The beauty of the church, the beauty of men being obedient, is described like a bride in Revelation 19. It's the righteous deeds of the saints. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, Revelation 19. The proper response to the pleasantness of trees to the sight is glory and thankfulness to God. As Christians, this is the kind of response that the world ought to have when they see us, when they see our works. Trees like humans stretch towards heaven. They are like ladders to heaven, shooting out of the earth and connecting to the sky. Trees have canopies which provide shade and rest from the scorching sun. Trees are hospitable, as Christians are to be as well. Trees, we are told in Genesis 2, provide food. As Christians, we too are to bear fruit in accordance with repentance and righteousness. The fruit we bear is to be food for the hungry. And of course, the fruit we bear ultimately comes from Christ, who is the bread of heaven. He is the root and we are the branches. But he is pleased to use his branches to feed the nations. In a way, we become the tree of life to the world because in Christ, we provide food which satisfies forever. We provide food which gives eternal life. In Genesis 2, a tree of life is planted. In the new covenant, Christ is established as the new tree of life. And we are his branches and we are his leaves for the healing of the nations. Revelation 22 says, in the middle of its street, talking about the new heavens and new earth, which I believe we're in right now, in the middle of its street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, meaning the church, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And what were these, what were these, uh, what was this fruit and leaves for? The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Incredibly, everything in the creation account of Genesis 2 has fuller and fuller meaning as we read through the rest of scripture. We are told about the rivers that flow from the garden to the rest of the world. These typify the rivers of life flowing from the Holy of Holies, from Christ himself to the four corners of the earth. We are told about the specific rocks, which are then used as part of the vestments of the priesthood, which ultimately point to the high priest, the rock of our salvation, Christ. And lastly, Adam is put to sleep, and out of his side is formed his wife, which typifies Christ dying on the cross and his being pierced on the side and his woman, the church being formed. So that's Genesis 1 and 2. And now here we are in Genesis 3 with the dragon and the woman. Genesis 2.16, to go back briefly, God commands the man, Adam, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, eat of it, you shall surely die, or dying you shall die. Now, the case has been made by theologians and commentators that, uh, that there's good reason to believe that God was not going to withhold the tree of knowledge of good and evil from Adam and Eve indefinitely. I, I believe that this is correct. Uh, when the serpent said, you will not surely die, he was lying, or at least partially lying, since they didn't physically drop dead on the spot. But when he said, you will be like God, knowing good and evil, he wasn't lying. Eating the tree did make them like God in that way, and this is how deception works. Deception works by attaching itself to a lot of truth and then inserting deadly falsehoods. 
You can have a full cup of water, which will give life, but if you put a drop of poison in it, it'll kill you. Since the rest of Scripture shows God making his children more and more like himself, I think it is very likely that Adam and Eve were eventually going to be given access to the tree. However, I believe it was denied initially in order to teach obedience. Obedience is the gateway to greater understanding. This was God's way of teaching Adam his priestly role. However, as we read, the serpent, or the dragon, deceived Eve, who then ate the fruit along with her husband and thereby disobeyed God. Now, why do I keep calling the serpent a dragon? I refer to the serpent as a dragon because that is what he's called uh, in the Apocalypse of John. What's the Apocalypse of John? Well, the Greek word apocalypsis means unveiling or revelation, the revelation of John, or just revelation. So, not revelations. In Revelation 12.9, he says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Revelation 20 says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So the serpent, the dragon, devil, Satan, it's all the same thing. But I think the dragon is a better description because I actually I think that Satan is a cherubim, essentially. But um, uh, I'll be using dragon throughout the, the sermon. In, verses, in verse 1 of Genesis 3, we're told that the dragon is cunning, that he went and struck up a conversation with Adam's wife. He doesn't talk to Adam. I think that's interesting talks to his wife. So we have the most cunning beast of the field, and he talks to the wife, not to Adam. And the first thing he does is plants a seed of doubt. What does he say? He says, did God really say? And what's interesting about this is, as far as we know, God only told Adam not to eat from the tree, and he did this before Eve was even created. God says, don't eat from this tree, and then he gives him Eve. That's in Genesis 2. We're not told that God instructs them after Eve is created. He instructs before Eve is created. And I think the dragon most likely knew this in his initial interaction with Adam and Eve. is with the one who God created last and who didn't hear directly from God. Eve had to trust that Adam really did hear from God. But the dragon inserts this doubt, which acted like a wedge between Eve and Adam. How does Eve respond? Her response is interesting because it's, it's almost orthodox. It's almost correct, but it's not entirely. She responds by saying uh, that it is lawful to eat from any of the trees except for the one. You can't even touch the one, she says. But God never says this. God never said you couldn't touch the tree. Nowhere did God utter that. They just couldn't eat from it. That was the command. And this is interesting because her response reveals that Adam did do the right thing by teaching his wife, by washing her in the word of God, like Paul says husbands should do. But it appears that Adam added to the word by making the prohibition more strict than what God had said. It's also possible that Eve just created this additional prohibition 
autonomously herself in her mind. My money is on Adam not teaching his wife precisely what God said. This is only one of numerous failings by Adam. And admittedly, this is a speculation, uh, but I, I, I think it's a, a reasonable one. So Eve gives this heterodox response, this not entirely correct response. It's mostly correct, but there's a little bit of wrong. And then the dragon responds with not another question, but a totally new teaching, an innovative doctrine, and one which is somewhat true, but mostly false, that they wouldn't die if they ate from the forbidden tree. Adam and Eve, they didn't die immediately, but they began dying. They were excommunicated from the Church of Eden and no longer had access to the sacramental tree of life. And so they did die eventually. And they most certainly died a spiritual death in their obedience immediately. But at the time, Eve didn't know any of this. She only heard something new from the dragon, who after instilling seeds of doubt, then re-attacked with a wholly new and deadly doctrine while her husband stood by silently. The dragon went on to entice her with power. You eat this and you will be like God. You will be empowered. The shackles of patriarchy will be gone and you will be powerful, a goddess. Perhaps the dragon knew the enticements of this kind of thing. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 tell us about what seems to be the dragon exalting himself as God and being brought down low because of it. It's also possible that these passages are actually about Adam. Either way, the dragon certainly entices Eve with the idea of being like God, with power. Verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Notice that she saw the tree was good for food the lust of the flesh, that it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and that it was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. This threefold description of the enticements of sin are used by John in his first letter, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, what's in the world, John? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So the sin of our mother and father. They ate, they disobeyed, and their eyes were open. They understood that they were naked, they understood their sin, and they tried to cover their nakedness their nakedness, their, their sin they tried to cover with leaves, their own solution, their own works, their own righteousness. Verse 8 says, and when they had heard uh, the Lord, in verse 8, when they heard the Lord walking in the garden, they hid themselves. And I don't believe this is metaphorical language meant to condescend to us that, 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 the, that God was walking but that the Lord took on some kind of, uh, I believe that the Lord took on some kind of corporal form here, as he does many times throughout the Old Testament. And Adam and his wife hid themselves because they knew what they had done. Verse 9, 
Notice God calls to Adam. God is seeking Adam out. He is calling to man, and he is initiating that call, even while Adam is in sin. Adam, where are you? Verse 10, Adam hears the voice of God and is afraid, and rightfully so. He knows that he has transgressed and that he is in trouble. Verse 11, uh, this is amazing how God inquires of Adam here. Notice first that he specifically calls to Adam. He speaks to the head. He addresses the head directly, just as he had done prior to the formation of Eve. He then goes on to ask these probing questions. The Lord loves the Socratic method. He loves asking questions to his creation. Just like Jesus did. Jesus is constantly asking questions, responding to questions with questions. He asks him if someone told him that, that he was naked. Then he asks if Adam had eaten from the tree. Verse 12, Adam responds not directly, but by shifting the blame. He takes the coward's way out. Another failure of Adam. He says, the woman who you gave to me, she gave me of the tree, and then I ate. Adam deflects by not only pointing the finger to his wife, but then pointing his finger to God. <laughs> this woman that you gave to me it is all her fault, and it's kind of your fault too. So not only does Adam possibly not teach his wife exactly what the Lord taught him, and not only does he stand by and let a dragon teach his wife wrong doctrine, and question God's commands and place a wedge between him and her. And not only does Adam let the dragon convince her to eat the fruit, to disobey God and, and uh, to join in with her on her disobedience by eating it too, but Adam doesn't take responsibility for any of this. Nothing. All of this falls on Adam and he, refuse, he refuses to claim any of it. Adam didn't instruct well. He didn't protect well. He didn't fight well. He didn't correct his wife. He didn't take responsibility. Through one man, Adam, Paul says, death entered the world. Verse 13. When God asks Eve what she's done, she deflects blame to the serpent. The devil made me do it, defense. The dragon deceived me, she says, which is true. She was, in fact, deceived, and it's because of this reason that Paul says women shouldn't speak in church, that they cannot exercise authority over men. Paul, writing to a, a young pastor named Timothy, says this to him, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Why is that, Paul? Why this chauvinistic, sexist stuff you're writing to Timothy? Well, he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. That's 1 Timothy 2. It's an interesting bit about childbearing there that he adds that Paul mentions at the end uh, because it shows up in Genesis 3, 2, a little later, and we'll get to that soon. So the curse and the proto-evangelion. How does the Lord respond? You have all of these excuses give, given when God confronts them on their sin. And this is how the Lord responds. He proceeds to pass judgment on his creation as he has 
done so many times up to this point, really, and as he continues to do regularly throughout history. He created and judged his creation during the creation week. He came in judgment saying, this is good, this is good, this is very good. Then he sees Adam alone, and he comes again in judgment. He says, this is not good. And so he makes it good. He makes it right by giving him a wife. So these are all judgments of the Lord. Sometimes judgments are good, sometimes they are bad. They're not always bad. And now the Lord once again has looked upon his creation and he pronounces another judgment. And his judgments are for all three. They're for the dragon, they're for the woman, and they're for the man. The deceiver, the deceived, and the coward. They're all guilty to some degree. God isn't a feminist who blames everything on the man. He isn't a men's rights activist who blames everything on the woman. And he isn't a Pentecostal who blames everything on demons. His judgments are true and just, and, we, and as we will see, also full of mercy and grace. He passes judgment on the dragon first. At the beginning of the chapter, we're told that the dragon was craftier than all the beasts of the field. But here, God makes the dragon more cursed than all the beasts of the field. Perhaps there's something significant about serpents as we see them now, having to go around on their belly. But snakes don't eat dust, and the Lord goes on to put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So this is more than enmity between men and snakes. Throughout scripture, there's enmity between the people of God, which is the seed of the woman, and the people of the devil, the seed of the serpent. And yet, even within the covenantal people of God, John the Baptist and Jesus tell us that there exist those who are indeed of the seed of the serpent. Jesus says to the Jews, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John 8. The Jews who rejected Jesus as Messiah, Jesus said that they were of the seed of the devil. They were the seed of the serpent. He says in Matthew 12, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of your heart the mouth speaks. You brood of vipers, you children of snakes, of the snake, of the serpent, of the dragon. John the Baptist says, You brood of vipers, who warn you to flee, flee from the coming wrath. In Luke 3, and he, he says this, John the Baptist just says this to an entire crowd of people coming to him. John, why don't you get to know these people first? Why don't you, why don't you sit down with them and hear their story? Grab a, grab a coffee with them. Hear them out. Hear their heart. Weep with them. Love them. In Matthew, John the Baptist directs his unloving language to the really nice pastors of his day when he says, uh, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Matthew 3. Jesus, after trashing a bunch of conservative pastors, says this of them, 
Therefore, you are witnesses against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Matthew 23, which Matthew 23, that chapter is an entire chapter of Christ saying a bunch of unchrist-like things. Jesus says that the conservative pastors are the children of the ones who murdered the prophets. Then he calls them serpents, which is the same Greek word used in the Septuagint for the serpent in Genesis. Hopesais is for the name of the dragon. He says they're a brood of vipers, that they're born of snakes, that they are children of the serpent, the seed of the serpent. What we see with Jesus and John is something we see throughout all of Scripture. It's a battle between the sons of God and the sons of the dragon. Paul says to a sorcerer named Elimas, O child of the devil, an enemy of all righteousness, you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Acts 13. And then John says in his letter, 1 John 3, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he was born of God. Again, there's language of seed being born. This is, this is everywhere in Scripture. But there's something amazing in the midst of this judgment, in the midst of this enmity, this battle, this struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the dragon. He gives us a little Easter egg, a whisper of the future, a declaration, almost a taunt and a promise. Verse 15, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That verse is the Proto-Evangelion. Theological nerds uh, termed it the Proto-Evangelion. It just means the first gospel. Proto means first, Evangelion, good news. The first good news. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promises this good news even in the midst of the curse. It's not good news for the dragon, but it's good news for us. That he, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ would bruise the head of the dragon, and that the dragon would bruise the heel of Christ, which can be understood as the crucifixion of Jesus. And the bruising of Satan's head can be understood, and the, and the bruising of Satan's head, the bruising of Satan's head is still, in some sense, occurring, even after Christ's death and resurrection. Paul says to the Romans in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So there's, there seems to possibly be a sense in which uh, the bruising of the devil's head continues into the church age, but that the decisive blow was given at the crucifixion. My sister and I just watched The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the film inspired by C.S. Lewis's book, and the scene in which the white witch kills Aslan is... A really um, disturbing, but I think accurate depiction, I believe, of what the spiritual realm believed was going on when Christ was crucified. There's, there's excitement for killing the Messiah. There's joy. There, it's, but it's this demonic frenzy of all of these 
grotesque creatures celebrating the death of the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. That's the bruising of the heel. And the bruising of the heel was their victory over Christ, but it's just the bruising of the heel. There was a deeper magic at work, what C.S. Lewis calls the deeper magic, which Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 2, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The deeper magic which God pronounced in the garden, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. To the woman, God increases the woman's sorrow and pregnancy and pain and giving birth. When he says, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you, I believe it's a double entendre. It's both a blessing and a curse. The same exact language is used in the next chapter, just a few verses later. Cain is upset because God accepted Abel's offerings and not his. And God says, sin lies at your door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. It's not a flattering comparison for the woman. But here's the double entendre. The curse part of this proclamation is that in sin, a woman will desire to overtake her husband like sin desired to overtake and rule Cain. And because of this, men will respond in a tyrannical, domineering rule over the woman, like the way Jesus describes Gentile rule as lording it over. For the woman, she has to fight against her urge to rule over her husband. For the man, he has to fight against his urge to lord it over his wife. Conversely, the blessing part of this promise is that the woman will desire her husband to rule her well, but not as the Gentiles do, but in a servant leadership, in a sacrificial way like Christ did for his church, not in sacrificing himself to the demands of his wife, that's what Adam did, but sacrificing himself for his wife in obedience to Jesus giving a sacrifice of love and holiness and gentleness, yet firmness, protecting his wife, having her best interests in mind instead of his own, laying his life down for her the way Christ would. In Christ, these are real possibilities. Although Jesus and Paul both seem to prefer singleness, it's not sinful to marry, and it's a real blessing if done Jesus' way, the way it was intended to be. Although it won't be without difficult, and Paul would spare us of this, but all blessings are not without difficulty. And lastly, to the man, the Lord curses him because, and I quote, you have heeded the voice of your wife and eaten from the tree. So he listened to the voice of his wife instead of the voice of the Lord. Eve thought she knew what was best for her family, and Adam didn't want to rock the boat. He didn't want any trouble, so he just went with it. This, men we need to be aware of. This is a fundamental aspect of our original sin, so take note. The Lord goes on to curse the ground, and that labor is now toilsome. Getting the ground to give us food is going to be hard. And we have the introduction of thorns and thistles, elements of nature not mentioned until after the fall. And these are associated with bad rulers and curses throughout Scripture. Our Savior wore a a crown of thorns for our sake. And the Lord pronounces the death sentence. He keeps his word. In Genesis 2, 17, the Lord says, if you obey me, 
I'll bless you, but if you disobey me, dying you will die in the Hebrew. Usually translated, you will surely die. But if you literally translate it, it's dying you will die. And sure enough, God passes his judgment. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Dying, Adam died. Adam then names his wife Eve, as she is the mother of all the living. And the Lord makes tunics of skin for Adam and Eve. He says to the other members of the Trinity and or the other members of the divine council in heaven, that indeed Adam and Eve did in fact become like them. And so he excommunicates them from the sanctuary of the garden, from the place where the Lord was dwelling, from the place where there was the sacramental tree, which if they ate, they would live forever. But he kicks them out and he places a cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way of the tree of life. Now when God made tunics for Adam and Eve, he had to sacrifice animals. He had to spill blood, and he used their skin, their skin to cover up the nakedness of Adam and Eve. This is another aspect of the Proto-Evangelion, another whisper of what's to come, that Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb, the sacrificial animal, God himself, will be killed for our sins, and that we will be covered in his righteousness that his death will cover our nakedness, our sin, and that we will be clothed with him. Paul explains further in Romans 5. Just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who received abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And by God himself becoming a man, Jesus Christ, and sacrificing himself, we also now have access again to the tree of life. We are able to enter again to the way of the tree of life. The way is what the early Christians called following Jesus who himself is the tree of life. And we enter back into the garden by the flaming sword. We bend our necks and allow the sword to pierce us by the word of Christ. And we allow the fire to purify us by the Holy Spirit. And we can once again enter into the sanctuary of God. The fall of, men, the fall of man affects all men. We are all living under the effects of sin, but we are not without hope. We have been given a second Adam who perfectly loved his wife and gave himself up for her. That wife is us if we repent and believe. If we place our trust in Christ, we will once again be able to live forever. We will once again have access to fellowship with our creator. We will be restored to our place in the garden and in a greater way. But it is not without our own sacrifice, not without submitting ourselves to the sword of God's word and to the fire of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. 
so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And amen. Amen. amen.